Welcome to the Disney Desk, everyone. I'm Sydney, just popping in to introduce today's episode. What you're about to hear was originally published as a special Patreon-exclusive episode. I'm sure that some of you are curious as to what happens over at patreon.com slash disneydesk, so here's a brief rundown. Our Disney Desk Friends tier is just $3 a month, where you'd get to vote every month on a topic you'd like to hear us cover on the show, and enjoy bonus clips every week from us, your Disney Desk hosts. Our $7 tier is called A Little More Magic, and it includes the same perks as the Disney Desk Friends, in addition to two full-length bonus episodes, such as the one you're about to hear every month, as well as exclusive access to hang out with us during special live-streamed events. And finally, our most magical patrons pay $12 a month and receive all of the aforementioned perks, as well as a very special shout-out from Carter and Sydney at the end of every episode. Thank you to all of our existing patrons who make content like this possible. We are very proud of this special episode and hope you'll consider subscribing to hear more magical episodes like it. So without further ado, please enjoy this Patreon-exclusive episode. When I podcast again, I'm gonna have a real great time. A fun new topic every night. It makes me glad. Some hot takes on my left arm. Some opinions on my right. An attitude to get some money. Now that just seems about right. Hey, Sydney, life is short. When you're done, you're done. We're on this earth to give some takes. And that's the way things are. When I podcast which is what I'm doing right now. I'm gonna tear it up on that mic. It's time for the Disney desk. I didn't mind that one, actually. I love that we have to waste the first five minutes of every episode now giving a, like, it's just that <laughs> Carter tries something and Sydney gives creative feedback. It's uh, truly like an American Idol dynamic of, like, you <laughs> performing a bit and me being like, hmm, well, I guess. Yeah, thumbs up. <laughs> I mean, that's our friendship. Me suggesting stupid shit and you being like, hmm, mm. you might want to, like, retry that one. Maybe maybe take a different approach. This that you just did? No, I liked it. Yeah, I thought I'd do a deeper cut from this movie. I feel like, and we'll talk about it, I feel like this movie soundtrack doesn't get enough play. In oh, it respects. doesn't. Yeah. Welcome to the Disney Desk, everyone. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. And welcome back to our Patreon Deep Dives. Woo! We're in the Patreon party. I almost forgot that this is like an exclusive VIP right now. This is much more fun. I was going to say, where's your monocle? Like, we got to cross I it up. I know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. This is the VIP, very important podcast. Dang it. Why didn't I call it that? Ugh. Oh, we got to work that in somewhere. We'll, we'll find a place okay. to put that. <laughs> Yes. So anyway, today we are taking a deep dive into the Princess and the Frog. Uh, yes. 
The Princess and the Frog, the 2009 Disney animated film directed by John Musker and Ron Clements. Um, it was Disney's... Well, we'll talk about the history of this movie, but yeah. there is a lot of fascinating coming together moment for a lot of what was building right. up in Disney. And in a lot of ways, I feel like this was one of the first films we bonded over. Oh, it probably was. Yeah, this is absolutely up in my like top three of Disney movies in general. I'm a big princess fan, and this film and Tiana are definitely like my number ones for sure. And I mean, those of you that saw, I mean, those of you listening saw our, or, or heard rather, our last episode talking about me auditioning for this role. So, which, by the way, and like, I think we can make this like a continuation of that last talk where I talked about my audition. Oh, I assumed we were going to talk about Did it you hear the news that they are now auditioning lookalikes for um, Halle Bailey's Little Mermaid? And I was like, fuck! Yeah, damn it. <laughs> I really missed the boat on that one. God damn it! Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Oh, okay. my destiny. In the last episode, I was like, yeah, no regrets. You know, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. Like, I've, I'm happy without, you know, it's okay that I didn't get the role, like, or I didn't get to, to make it. And then, like, the next week I see this article that's like, Oh yeah, they're casting for Halle Bailey lookalikes for the new Ariel, and I was like, God damn it! <laughs> it's literally like, oh, you could be the icon, the most Disney princess to ever Disney princess. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! Why did this movie take like ten years to make? They created right. this in like two thousand fourteen. Uh. Anywho. Oh, God. So yes, buckle your seatbelts. We got a deep dive for you. Is this one of your favorites? It's one. Of, I mean, I just said it's my favorite, but like, I think that's why we yes. bond over it so much because we, like, love it. We love it. Yeah, you know what's funny? It's like I was getting right back into animation as a whole, like right when we started to become friends. Mm. Like that was right when Frozen was coming out. I'm like, you know what? It's about time I come back to all these Disney movies, and I was like, finally able to appreciate. Oh, these things are masterpieces. These are like the most perfect version of this art form that have ever mm. been made and at some point i was like you know what i dragged this out too long i finally have to watch princess and the frog um and if we want to start with it i think it'd be interesting to talk about our personal histories with this movie mm. um, because for me and like i feel like you have a much more interesting history with this so i'll just get mine out of the way this was very much, when this came out in 2009, this was very much my era where I was all sports. I'd finally grown out of Disney, and I was starting to grow out of animation where even it was like, you know, I'll go see Toy Story 3, but I won't be caught dead out of anything outside of Pixar and maybe a little DreamWorks. Right. And I remember seeing all these ads and just being like, ugh, Disney, what are we doing here, people? Mm-hmm. Especially because the ads were so, like, centered around, like, the hijinks of the frogs. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, ugh. I really was just the most stereotypical boy. Like, I was everything they were fighting against with this right. movie. <laughs> right. Like, no, these are for everyone. These aren't just for girls. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, this, you know, I have probably one of the most, I think part of the reason that this film has such a special place in my heart, obviously, like, 
being a black woman, like, this is the first and currently only African-American Disney princess. And um, I got, I went to the theater um, to see it with my grandparents, who it's like, you know, both who have since passed away, but, you know, moments like these, like, like this, were so meaningful, even at the time. And we were in, like, middle school. We were, like, seventh grade. Eighth grade. We were, like, eighth grade on our way to high school, actually. Um, hey, this was, like, eighth grade, I guess. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but, like, what was I saying? Oh, even at the time, I still could grasp how important it was. No, I, w- I mean, I was the, dem- the, you know, target demographic for a princess film. But it meant so much, even at the time, I recognized that it was special for my grandparents to even, like, witness this. I mean, this was the same year that they got a black president. And um, I don't know if they ever thought that they would witness anything like that in their lifetimes. Um, A president or a Disney princess that was black. These are people that were born in the South in the 30s, in in the midst of, um, like, you know, the, the remnants of, of Jim Crow and, and things like that. Um, they're from North Carolina, and, you know, they... It's just, like, I, this film and my experience with it as a child, like, has so much meaning, and something that I just, like, hold dear to my heart to this day, that, like, that I got to witness them witnessing this really historic film. Right, because, like, they've literally lived for the entire existence of the Walt Disney Company. Oh, yeah, (laughs) exactly. You know, even at that point, it was, like, over 60 years Mm -hmm. to finally have that. And I was going to ask, was it, like, you know, there was hype for it going in, right? Because it's so weird to think of, like, early internet hype, where it's, like, you know, now, like, the Ant-Man trailer, it's like there's a countdown on the internet. But, like, I don't know what the version of that was back in 2009. Like, how hyped were we getting for this? Here's the thing, and you kind of walked me right into something that I wanted to talk about specifically around this film, and it was that, like, to this day, actually, this is the film that I feel like people are less familiar with um, Mm. than the other princess films. And the most cynical parts of me are, like, racism but (laughs) not that people are choosing not to watch a black princess film but that it was not delivered to them Mm -hmm. in the same way that the other princess films were or princess films that came after this were um and so for so many people to this day i constantly have people being like oh i never saw that to this day yes and so my experience was like I remember because I grew up in a in a black Baptist church, and so within my community there was hype because this was right. again historical, and so so everybody at my church was talking about this movie. Everyone was so excited to see this movie. My family wanted to see it. We all saw it together. I went to school to the one other black girl in my class, and we talked about it, and that was it. And yeah, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. Like I was gonna say, I 
I bring this up with my friends all the time because, you know, we I talk about animation a lot and I reference, I'm like, honestly, I kind of think Princess and the Frog is one of the two or three best princess movies. And they're like, oh, I heard, I thought that one was bad. And I'm like, have you seen it? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, there you go. Right. And yeah, the sort of presentation of it is kind of what I wanted to talk about too. And I feel like we'll, like, this will be good conversation for the very end of the discussion too, um, when we're talking about this film's legacy. But I do think in a lot of ways the struggle this movie had was very much kind of confirmation bias for the film community. They had decided that hand-drawn animation was out. They decided no one wants to see a black lead. Why would we, you know, like, there's no market for this. Right, why would we spend money? Yeah. Yeah. You say this isn't going to work. You let them make it. You don't really push it as hard as some of the other stuff. And then Mm -hmm. you go, ah, see, we proved our own See, it didn't work. Nobody saw it, yeah. Yeah, even though you deliberately changed the scales to benefit your preconceived idea right yeah I, I I couldn't agree more um you know it's I I try not to to I, I honestly do try not to call everything as racist but why the fuck not it is <laughs> I I do feel like you don't play the race card nearly as much as you think you as do. I probably could yeah or right could. <laughs> right yeah yeah you're probably right about that um but, you know, I can't wait to, to get into more about this this talk because in, like, is this film a home run or what? Because it is, his, like, so historically prevalent, but, like, as an animated piece of art, it's kind of a masterpiece. Like, it's it's gorgeous, and, and we will get into that. But, like, there are so many positives to this film that it's kind of robbery that it was not treated like Frozen. People don't know how good yeah, it is. Yeah, the people, the people have no idea that it's great. And as we, as I, I was going to do a brief history section. I'm going to make it shorter than last time because I don't really like when I just kind of talk. Okay. Like incessantly. Um, Nat Carter sure likes to talk. And <laughs> in terms of my like in sort of investigative thoughts for this, you mentioned Frozen. In a lot of ways, this reminds me a lot of Great Mouse Detective versus Little Mermaid, where it's like, they kind of made a masterpiece, but no one believed in this specific art form at the time. Mm. So, like, it got buried in favor of the flashy toys of Rapunzel and Frozen. In a lot mm-hmm. of ways, this was like the dawn of the second Disney Renaissance. You can't tell the story of Frozen without telling the story of Princess and the Frog. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's a story about can you go home again? Not just for hand-drawn animation, but making something... For so long during this era, Disney was trying to be DreamWorks. Like, Chicken Little was all pop culture references and celebrity cameos Mm -hmm. and, like, oh, it's modern, Mm. you know. You know, uh, Home on the Range was, like, all celebrity stunt casting. I refused to finish that movie on principle. You don't have to. Like, Meet the Robinsons, Bolt. They all were trying to be, like, let's be, like, DreamWorks and Pixar and just not working because that wasn't what Disney did. Right. This is what Disney did. And not only was it bringing back hand-drawn animation, not only was it trying to push a more representative nature in the company, but also, like, it was, like, can we get people to believe in magic again? Can we be the fairy tale company again? So it was, like, widely known. 2004, they had explicitly said, Home on the Range is the last hand-drawn animated film we're doing. Treasure Planet in 2002 was such a financial disaster that basically they went, we're pull- that's it, we're pulling the plug. You know, Lilo and Stitch, uh, you know, Emperor's New Groove, 
Brother mm. Bear. Like, the stuff that's already way too in production that it would cost too much to stop it, you yeah. guys get to cross the finish line, everything else in the trash. Um, like, we're done, no more. Um, there's a really great quote from uh, Clemens that he just describes how it felt. You know, getting rid of hand-drawn animation was a death. You know, it really felt like one. At one point, they decided to scrap the desk we'd worked on and throw away the paper that we used to sketch on. An entire art form was being blamed for the fact that a handful of films failed to make money. Wow. Yeah, and it's like, literally, the backbone of the company, like, the heart of the company was being killed. Jeez. Um, and then that changed in... So, uh, around 2006, Eisner finally gets booed out of the company. Roy Disney basically forms a coup. He gets enough of the board to vote no... Like, basically vote no contest and kick Eisner out. Eisner very much ended up being sort of the mad king at his throne, mm-hmm. watching as the rebels finally <laughs> kick down the door. Uh, Iger takes over as CEO, and he appoints Lasseter, because he was, you know, he buys Pixar almost immediately. It's like, you're a right. Disney company now. No more futs, you know, no more futzing around. Right. And Lasseter says, we are going to try to make one hand-drawn film every year. And oddly enough, both Pixar and Disney were working on Princess and the Frog stories. Whoa, so, I didn't know that. Yes. For Disney, it was one of those, like, look, every single fairy tale that's ever existed, or, like, classic literary tale, we've tried at least once. Is it, like, it's like the Don Quixote, we have some Swan Lakes, or Swan Princess stuff. Like, mm-hmm. they're just files of this stuff. And Pixar was trying to work on an adaptation of a book called The Frog Princess, which was basically the same plot of, oh, she kisses the frog, but then turns into a frog, too. Oh. And their version was set in 1930s Chicago. So basically, from there, they were like, okay... And I wanted to bring all this up because I think it's or I, I think it's interesting how kind of arbitrary and organic some of these decisions are made. Because I remember even at the time, so many people were like, "Oh, you know, Obama got elected, so of course they have to make a black princess." It was the same discourse we had with Miles Morales, and it's like, do you guys not understand how long it takes to make art, specifically <laughs> right. hand-drawn animation? Right. And yeah, so uh, Disney takes over the Princess and the Frog script. And they end up making it 1920s New Orleans because John Lasseter apparently loves New Orleans, which, like, oh, a middle-aged, nerdy, handsy guy who wears Hawaiian shirts, of course he loves New Orleans. Right. That's the most obvious thing. And from there, it just kind of becomes, like, well, why not make her black? This is an opportunity, you know, yeah. when are we going to have an opportunity like this again? Right. And basically, it becomes a rallying the troops moment where they're like, we're bringing Handron back, get everyone back, everyone who's still in the game who's ever worked on a Disney film, call them and see if we can get them to do even a frame of animation. Mm. And the big call is getting Musker and Clemens, who really are, like, kind of the godfathers, along with Howard Ashman now and Mankin, of the Disney Renaissance. Like, they worked on The Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules. Like, the text that all of these movies are based on now was their work. And, of course, they made Treasure Planet, which was their passion project for decades, that ended mm. up kind of killing animation. So in a lot of ways, this was also a redemptive opportunity right. for them to be like, we can fix this. Um, Tiana was inspired by Leah Chase, um, a famous uh, Creole uh, chef who also founded her own restaurant. And this film almost immediately got into a lot of hot water when it was announced um, mm. at a shareholders meeting in 2007. And I don't know how much of this you know, but like they did one of their shareholder meetings for like, and our next Disney princess, yeah. Princess and the Frog. Um, some of the complaints were including, but not limited to, uh, Tiana was originally named Maddie, and she was a maid. 
that has some problematic racial, uh, like that has some racial slang that's uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, the prince was originally white. Um, it's use of voodoo as this like evil thing. And also like, apparently there's a lot of mixing and matching between the terms voodoo and hoodoo, even though those are two different things. Right. And kind of the elephant in the room, Katrina, and I put this note in all caps, Katrina just fucking happened, man. Yeah. This was literally like less, like a, like about a year ago. <laughs> The entire city was underwater. Right. Like, the city was destroyed. So, that's when they bring in Oprah, which, we've talked about this before. Uh, when in doubt. Like, whenever, yeah, what in case of emergency, break Oprah's glass. <laughs> right. And that's kind of the interesting mix of, like, you know, these two twin arcs of, like, we're trying to bring the animated tradition back. And also, we are trying to create a black princess in the modern world. Right. And kind of struggling with that wow yeah i didn't know any of that actually um you're always much more reliable at like historical accounts of the company that's why we keep you around yeah that's how i that's why i get the big donuts right exactly want to dive in how do you want to dive into this you mentioned you have a lot of notes that are kind of independent of our usual categories i do you know i want to open by actually talking about the animation itself the art design for this because yes if this and you know watching this i was like how are there not more of these movies not specifically prince and the frog movies but like how are there not more of these hand-drawn things (laughs) Right. After it. How did this not sell everybody on the idea that we need to make more hand-drawn animation? The problem is it sold a lot of people. The problem is those are people who already work in animation. Oh, that's a very good point. (laughs) You you look at so many movies. It's like in Moana, they have like the tattoos as hand-drawn. In Spider-Verse and Mitchell's versus Machines, there's all like the scratch-drawn elements. Like, Animators are so desperate to keep hand-drawn as a thing that they Mm. keep trying to force it in. And I agree with you. It is so, like, it's so immaculate in this movie. You feel like you shouldn't have to sell a studio. Even if it doesn't make money, this should be, like, a prestige thing for them. Right. It's like the, it's like, you know, all these producers were like, yeah, sometimes Martin Scorsese's movies don't make money. But it helps the studio if we say we're in business with Martin Scorsese. Right. Saying you're a studio who makes hand-drawn animation should matter a little bit if, if you all listened to our 12 days of podmas i made a reference to this what well, i don't even remember what we talked about and like why i brought up wanting to live in this movie oh that was the topic if you could live in a in a disney mm-hmm. movie and i chose this film um because it is just filled with so much light and magic and it's just the way that it's like lit and colored and the palettes mm. i like i am unable to like articulate any intelligent sounding um <laughs> ideas about this other than just like yelling that like it's amazing and i love it it is weird it is weird that we so many people do film podcasts for a visual medium it's like right? it makes more sense to do youtube videos because you can be like well you see here your honor right well for me it is like so they talked a lot about like oh you know, Bambi and Lady and the Tramp were the examples. Like, they went back to, like, old, old Disney, where it was way more, like, impressionist and, mm. like, 
we're not drawing a tree. We're drawing the idea of a tree. What's right. the perfect tree look like in your head for this specific scene? Draw that. And this film is that perfect example of why the drawn form is so great because it creates like the perfect version of everything in your head. And when you combine that with like a real ass city, like when you're right. like, this is set in the modern world, this is set in New Orleans, and you have like just enough details on the buildings where you're like, oh yes, this is a perfect New Orleans building, but not enough right. that your eye gets distracted. It just feels perfect, mm-hmm. especially because it has like a literal painterly element to it. Um, like for this movie, they tried to bring in sort of like a lot of the digital technology they use for hand-drawn these days. They tried to use like Toon Boom and stuff. Apparently it was a disaster. So they're like, you know what? We're just going to draw the characters on paper, Xerox them into After Effects. Mm. And and the background, but the backgrounds are on Photoshop and they still look like they were painted with actual paint. Right. It's so like, and there's something so arresting, especially with That's this one. Yeah, it's arresting because... Like, with a lot of the Disney Renaissance movies, the backgrounds are beautiful, but oftentimes they're made with the same stuff as the characters. Mm. There's something so interesting about this movie where it has these, like, painterly dream-like backgrounds. And then, like... It's almost like Mary Poppins. Yes, exactly. And the characters have this, like, very, like, inked feel. They're more, like, they're more physical. They're more present. I am just always taken by how 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 do and maybe you know this how do you animate like glow see that's one of the reasons why it's complicated it's very very complicated and that's why hand-drawn animation is so difficult because you have to like figure out like what shades do i put on this person Mm -hmm. it's literally like a game of shading it is literally a game of like using different kinds of inks in this film in particular, for example, the lightning bugs were actually a little bit of 3D effects. Like, they wanted mm. to enhance the glow of them. And I do think this is a good example. It's similar to, um, if you've ever seen the movie Klaus on Netflix, which was hand-drawn oh. with a lot of CGI elements. Mm-hmm. For example, the lighting in that movie, what they would do is they'd be like, they'd be like, all right, here's a point of light. We're going to draw how it looks on his shoulder at the beginning of the scene. We're going to move the time. We're going to go to the end of the scene, draw where it should be. And we're going to mm-hmm. let a computer program figure out, like, every oh. single spot in between. And that's a way of, like, cutting shortcuts. I think, like, one thing I appreciate about both of these movies is they make it clear, like, digital and CGI is not the enemy of hand-drawn. Right. But it should be a tool that we use to enhance hand-drawn animation. But, yes, that is, like, that is what is so killer about this movie. It's that glow. Everything has yeah. this just very warm, pleasant feeling, like... That simultaneously, like, obviously this is invoking the Disney Renaissance, but it almost feels like you're invoking nostalgia on top of the Renaissance. It's like, these are how these movies made you feel. They're not one-for-one recreations of the visual style. Exactly. Um, I also wanted to talk about, sort of in that element, I think, on top of that, this movie just has a killer visual language. Like, Mm -hmm. I think it's really underrated how good this movie is in terms of telling the story just through visuals right like for example even in the beginning of the movie just the shot of them getting on the trolley and going from all of these like beautiful houses Mm -hmm. to more of these like sort of like shanty houses right it just it's like again it's like that's why we do art in visual form it's like that ability to without saying any words with literally just a fade in and like two seconds worth of drawings right to create that kind of visual storytelling. 
or just like how the shadows are able to manipulate the physical space or like again just how it's it's so hard to quantify but right just this movie is i would argue maybe the best in all of disney dumb at just telling the story through drawings and motion yes. and expressing not just character emotion but the emotion of the scene the emotion of a space mm. Can we talk briefly about, you know, this is something I mentioned in when we were doing Halloween. I talked about Dr. Facilier being some of my favorite designs. And re-watching again for this podcast, like, I just, I am so impressed by that sequence. Um, and you know what? You're absolutely right. Like, um, now I'm, like, double-backing on myself a little bit, but, like, to, to piggyback off of what you just said about using this visual medium to tell a story, so much, like, this film pretty successfully, I think, perfectly executes the idea of having an opening song, an opening number, that just very neatly explains, like, all the exposition you could ever want right. without having a character say a damn thing. Like, right. and the Orleans. song by, it's called Down in New Orleans, by Randy Newman. If you didn't know any better, you would have thought this was just like any uh, any a very general song. Yet, mm. it somehow is super effective in being like, look, here's the people that live in this town. This is what's going on. That guy does magic. And maybe mm. it's a bad thing. <laughs> yes, it seems like he's a trickster. Yeah, but that guy's got a whole lot of money. But not everybody's got money. And like, and then all of that is carried through these little vignettes of people just like living in down in New Orleans, and it looks so magical and inviting. But it, it's got the essence, you know, those commercials that are like, "Visit Michigan." Right. <laughs> yes. Like it's of any one of those. Film that's ever existed. This sells you on a location better than any of the others. Right. It's like that's that is what I. This is a heightened version of like a state tourism ad. <laughs> and I do think you make a good point of, like, I feel like you can tell when a Disney movie is going to be good based on its opening song because, like, it's, like, quote-unquote the worker song or the opening song. Like, yeah. Frozen Hard and Frozen or Fathoms mm. Below Hi or ho. Arabian Nights. <laughs> like, yes, the good ones kind of do get the themes across. Even if they don't show you explicit characters, they give you the ideas that you're going to follow throughout this movie. Right. And I think this is... a I feel like people who don't appreciate the story of Princess and the Frog, I feel like would benefit to like rewatch the beginning of this movie and really take in just some of the little like exchanges, particularly the exchange where just Dr. Facilier doing all of this incredible magic for a nickel, and then Big Daddy LaBeouf just randomly decides, oh, I'll give this kid, a, I'll give this kid a huge uh, wad right. of cash, whatever. It's no skin off my back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like even little things like that, I think just do such a great job explaining the story, or even just the fact that we open on the stars like twirling like fireflies. It has such how it theatrical such a, it, it, is that opening for for it to just be Anika Noni Rose, the actress who plays Tiana, and we can talk about her. Just giving this, like, reprise, like, it's, I guess you can call it a reprise if we, if this is the first time we're hearing the song, but, like, what, how, what theater is that? Like, wow, like, that is such great theater <laughs> to open with this, like, star motif. Right, yes, exactly. It starts with a star motif. It, it, again, Disney is 
this is Disney getting back to understanding pomp and circumstance. Mm-hmm. Like, again, it's like, Disney, stop trying to be cool. Stop trying to be DreamWorks. You'll never be cool, but you can be important. Yeah. And understanding the pomp and circumstance of the wishing star, like, right. to the point they're making a whole fucking movie about the wishing star now. Like, understanding... <laughs> right. That, like, this idea of, like, magic is real and it can exist even in a place like New Orleans Mm -hmm. is a big deal. Right. Um, I also love the Dr. Facilier stuff because I think that works best in, like, explaining why hand-drawn animation can be more fun than CGI because it plays with abstraction. Like, the minute he shakes both of their hands, and they talk about this, I watched a lot of the -the behind-the-scenes stuff for this movie, because for all these movies, they do, like, a 24-minute documentary thing on the DVD that has some kind of fun name, like Magic in the Bayou. Yeah. uh, The making of Princess and the Frog. Right. Um, But, uh, like, the Hercules one, going the distance. You you get it. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And they talk about this scene. The minute he shakes both of their hands, any sense of physical space is just gone. We are just in a soundscape of color and noise and chaos and weird magic. And you're like, all of this makes complete 100% sense. And I'm trying to think of the only Disney movie I think that even gets close to this is, in terms of the CGI ones, is Encanto. Mm -hmm. Which is why I like Encanto so much, because it's like, I feel like we're finally getting the rules of hand-drawn animation really into a CGI Disney movie. Yeah, you know, the Dr. Facilier scene is, I think, the most, one of the most perfect villain sequences ever. But, um... You know, there are so many, there are, there are a few instances within this movie where you're like, oh, they're, like, this studio is showing off. And, like, right. this is one of those scenes where I'm like, oh, this is showing off. But then later there would be another scene where I'm like, no, that is showing off. But, like, I watch right. this, this and I'm like, scene. like, oh, this is just, like, showing off all, like, all, like you know, all the guns blazing here, like this is the extent and more of what animation can do and be. It can be absolutely anything. There are no rules. There are no rules. And right. what better way to express that there are no rules with with regard to, like, the limits of, of animation than through, like, a voodoo man who's doing literal magic. Like, He's what... calling what, on the dark What arts. a perfect... Right. What a perfect vehicle for, like, <laughs> just showing off what... The crazy things that you can make characters do in a in a cartoon. Yes, it, it that sequence feels like, you know, you called all of the great animators of Disney history and were like, you know, one more ride, guys, and everyone brings their best yeah. moves. Right. Because it's like we're never gonna get to do this again. And we also have to acknowledge what you said earlier about like, no, the importance of the art in this film is that it made you feel something. Is like, this scene actually invokes real fear. <laughs> Right, like, and they ch- and they do such a good job of making it scary for us and the people in the universe. Right, like his, like Naveen's bumbling, like uh, servant fellow, Lawrence, is yeah. literally shaking in horror as he watches this man mutate into a frog. Right, exactly. Like, oh, this actually is scary. And then yeah. it ends on a all black frame except like a skull face out of nowhere. Or even just, like, Dr. Facilier's looking at us, the audience, as, like, the swirly green magic flies around, and it just keeps adding, like, skull parts to his face. Yeah. And then there are these, like, literal voodoo dolls that come out, and they're, like, chanting. Like, what the hell is that? Right. (laughs) And again, I think it's... Like, I think it's a... I think it's so telling that they invoked earlier Disney films. Like, they didn't invoke the Renaissance. 
so much in terms of talking about the art style. I think this movie sort of harmonizes the Renaissance sort of style and aesthetic while going back to a lot of the roots of like the earlier pre-musical Disney movies. Mm. And in that those really were fairy tales in terms of like the tone is everything. It's funny. Right. It's goofy. It's scary. It's vibrant. It's fu- like it snap your fingers. It's, you know, weird. And I think that sequence invokes it better than anything. Right. Um, well, I was going to say, if you didn't have another point on this topic. I wanted to use this as a jumping off point to talk a little bit about, like, the story and the world and, like, the themes. And can I just say, in terms of, like, modernizing a fairy tale, I think I'm hard-pressed to think of a better example. And... I think it's so telling that, like, we have this very tangible real world. Like, it's very dreamlike, but we're still like, this is a real location set in a real yeah. present day. This isn't fairy tale Europe. Having magic works so much. Honestly, I'd say it, like, really enhances. Like, it's so much cooler when you see magic come into the space. Because, right. like, everything leading up to Dr. Facilier doing that, even him making someone's hair grow, it's like, ah, that could be a parlor trick. Right. The minute he starts having voodoo dolls dancing around and like right. all these colors and sparks going off, it's like, oh yeah, no, this is a fairy tale. There is magic in this world right. and it's magic in the real world. And that's kind of scary and cool. Yeah. You know, the more we talk about this, the more I realize, oh, New Orleans is the perfect location for a story like this because it is notoriously spooky. <laughs> like right. anytime, any show like Ghost Hunters, Paranormal Adventures, Vampires.com, there's always, like, an episode of, like, we're in New Orleans where the paranormal activity is significantly higher than other parts of the country. Like, it is just, like, it's the spooky spot. The spooky scales are straight up spooky. Right. And, like, <laughs> it's like that's that's real life. Like, everybody just knows that, like, some spooky things go down in, in, in New Orleans. And um, so this is just, like, the perfect landscape for, to be like, oh, this is the city where magic just happens. Like, duh. No further questions, mm-hmm. Your Honor. Yeah, and I, like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of attempts to bring, be like, we're telling a fairy tale in the real world can be a little, like, mm-hmm. audience, you can't see me, but I'm doing a masturbatory uh, hand gesture. I right. uh, apologize to our younger viewers. But, like, it can be like, oh, this is like this, this is like this. And there's a weird earnestness to how they were, like, oh, yeah, like, the evil sorcerer would be, like, this con man, like, card tarot reader. Mm-hmm. And, like, the good witch would be this, like, old voodoo lady who just lives in the middle of the swamp. And, like, the king of this castle would be the richest man in town. Like, right. there's an elegance to it where it's, again, it's earnestness. It's, like, being, like, there's value in fairy tales and figuring out how to graft fairy tale elements to a real world without having that Shrek, like, Oh, we're too fucking cool for this shit. Right. What if the what if the king was a short guy who kind of looks like Michael Eisner? Exactly. Yeah, that'll show him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, this is something that I brought up when we were talking about Hocus Pocus 2, of the idea of introducing magic as neutral, and then mm-hmm. having different characters, like, relate to it differently, use it differently, and, like, that way it is just, like, sort of inf- infinitely flexible. And so mm-hmm. this movie does that perfectly of of having two magical beings one very very evil one very very good and both of them being absolutely necessary to this story and the arc of these characters 
oh, yes. I, like, I really do like Mama Odie. One, because, yeah, it just adds that, like, neutral casualness to magic where she rolls up and it's just like, all right, who the who fuck did it? decided <laughs> we should mess with the Shadow Man? Yeah. Of course this was going to happen. Right. And I also love that, like, yeah, magic is neutral because Mama Odie tries to make them realize they don't need a magical solution to this. Right. I... In general, I love how deceptively simple this movie, like, it would be very easy for them to solve this film's problems. Like, you don't have to go on that convoluted a quest to get to, you two need, you know, you two need to appreciate you need each other. Right. And that will make you a princess. And, like, I like, and that ties into what you're saying of magic being neutral. It's like, no, magic isn't needed here. You guys just need to grow. Right. Like, magic is trying to teach you a lesson, and you're just being too stubborn to see it. I also love, you know, and I guess the same thing can be said about Dr. Facilier, but, like, when they go to Mama Odie, she gives them an impromptu performance about, like, you guys are going to be fine, and they're like, no, no, can we take magic, please? And, like, I, I kind of love the idea that, like, she already has, like, the foresight via magic yes. and probably psychic abilities to tell, like, exactly every step that they're going to take from this point forward mm-hmm. and being like, all right, bye. And she's like, this is going to work out either way, so how do you want it? Yeah, exactly. It's like, she's actively annoyed that, like, (laughs) Tiana completely misses the point. Like, I I also love the sort of switcheroo of the characters that Naveen pretty much figures out right away, like, oh, I've been going about this all wrong. Like, it shouldn't be about money. I should be about caring about people. And Tiana, our protagonist, is like, it just flies straight over her head what she's supposed to learn from this. Yeah, I'm going to work harder. Um, Yes, I, and that sequence is so funny because even Mamodi is just like her flamingos are like fine. Here's a magical solution. (laughs) Right, flamingos are like we're not doing that again. She's like here, here's the magical solution you want. It's not going to turn out how you want, but whatever. If you knew, like, if you need another hour to learn this lesson, then so help mine. Yeah, (laughs) but yeah, I know she literally could have explained to them at any point that was the solution, but she doesn't because again, it's a fairy tale. You need to learn something, otherwise, all of this was literally for nothing. And I like, I don't know, it, that's a style of storytelling I just really like. Right. Can we, and on this topic, let's spend some time showing appreciation for probably the most colorful, fleshed out group of characters um, that are so delightful, each and every one of them. Right. It is. I think that, I feel like, and when we talk about, like, why this movie didn't catch on as much, I feel like people got lost with the Firefly and the Croc, or Alligator, and I'm like, yeah, but they're great characters. They're the best. Like, watch the actual movie. Yeah, please do. (laughs) It's the Olaf thing again, where you're like, ugh. Right. When you see the ads, but then when you watch it, you're like, oh, no, they're here for a reason. Right, for a very good reason. Um, Side note, I was watching this and like the more I heard them talk about Ray and Lewis I was like did Ray Lewis play for the New Orleans Saints and this is like is this like a long-winded pun he did not I learned no no, he only played for the Ravens but that would have been fucking hilarious if he did and that this was like (laughs) that would be so obtuse but I I can't imagine John Lasseter has watched a football game in his entire life that's true maybe Musker and Clemens but not (laughs) that's very true anyway side note that man revels in being a nerd too much right um where do we begin? Let's start with, with Tiana and Charlotte. Right. Those seem like a yes. good place to start. 
Our princess is is Tiana, voiced by Anika Noni Rose, who most notably was in Dreamgirls with, uh, she was the third Dreamgirl alongside Beyonce and Jennifer Hudson. Um, she is truly the human embodiment of a real life princess. And her voice is delightful and so well placed uh, in this role. And her singing voice I is mean, oh, angelic. She's yes. beautiful. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, we talk about, like, star making moments in mm. live action. Like, the moment when I let like an actress steps out and the light is hitting her in a way where you're like, this is a star. Mm -hmm. The moment where Tiana, her dress has been destroyed. Charlotte is being, you know, loaning her another dress. You see her in like shadow, slowly putting on the glove. And then when she steps out, as she gets into lights more and more sparkly, you're immediately like, this is the most, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. This is a star, like this character matters. That is a princess. Um, Yeah. And, as we begin this conversation on terms of characters, I was going to say, one of the things I like most about this film is they get back to the roots of Disney's hiring practices with voice actors, where mm-hmm. it's not the biggest name you can find. It's Broadway stars, mm-hmm. music, like, which I guess Dreamgirls was a movie musical, but it's sure. now counted as a Broadway yeah. show. Mm-hmm. And, like, great character performance. You're not getting all the A-listers all the time. You're right. getting people who, like, belong here. And This film kind of simultaneously talk- does both, though. It does, but I think, because originally there was a lot of discussion about how um, apparently Alicia Keys really campaigned, like actively called Disney asking for this role, and I just think about how like choosing Anika was such a great choice because it lets this movie exist outside of like the Bolt uh, Chicken Run little space, not Chicken Mm -hmm. Run, Chicken Run's actually good, of like uh, just celebrity stunt casting or like, oh, this was just a thing Alicia Keys did. Right, Um, yeah. I love Tiana because she, like, there's so much discourse about how to write a strong female character, Mm -hmm. and unfortunately for a lot of men writers, that results in them being cold and distant, and as the French would say, a bitch. Yes. Um, Whereas, like, Tiana's a little jaded, she's a little cynical, but she's earnest, she's sweet, she's kind. She's like the, like, a weirdly perfect balance between a classic Disney princess and, like, Meg from Hercules. Where it's like, yeah. yeah, she's been around the block a couple times. She's like, you know. They somehow captured, like, sort of an old-fashioned sense of ladylikeness. Something mm-hmm. about Tiana feels very delicate and very delicate in the most positive way. But, like, she is refined. She is, in everything she does, has this air of, like, ladylikeness, which I think kind of speaks to this sort of, like, Southern Belle culture of where she is. Except just not as much of a caricature as her best friend Charlotte is, but yes. everything she does, even as a frog, feels <laughs> like, a, like a refined young lady doing it. Um, even when she's, like, exhausted at work. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, they... She... that That is why she feels so much like a classic Disney princess. Um, but uh, unlike her others is fascinated not fascinated but really really enthusiastic about labor about working yeah it's and it's kind of all she knows really but i think it's so interesting because walt disney always talked about how cinderella was his favorite princess because it captured his feeling of like you know you just keep working and you keep working and you keep working and you pray for that big break you pray for the pieces to come together and i'd argue Mm -hmm. tiana is an even better example of that where it's like because and, like, 
while we have to talk about how this film approaches race at some point, like, I will say, again, that scene where um, LaBeouf gives that kid a lot of money, it captures, like, oh, yeah, for black people, this is completely arbitrary, whether or not they're given that big break. So, of course, some people would right. cling to magic, like, wishing to have that change right. made. And I like that Tiana's like, look, kids, I've been around the block. Wishing stars, that doesn't work. Like, not in mm-hmm. a mean way, but in an empathetic way of, like, you know, you got to put in the work, and that sucks, but if I keep working, maybe I'll be able to pull this off. Right. You know, if I have any gripe with uh, with with some of the narratives of this story, it's that, like, being in a romantic relationship is just as important, if not more important, than, like, career success. <laughs> see, I go back and forth on that. I see where you're coming from, but I would argue... Mm-hmm. For me, the best example of that is Aladdin, where Jasmine spends the entire movie being like, I am not surprised to be one. Whereas Mm -hmm. Tiana, like, the realization she makes at the end of the movie is that, and I guess I I think for me it hits me because I relate to it. It's her realizing, Mm -hmm. like, all of this work has to be for something. And a restaurant is not something. That's just a place. That's just a business. What is the point of that restaurant? It's turning, like, tangible into emotional where she realizes, like, yeah, her dad wanted that restaurant, but it wasn't just about having a restaurant. It was because he loved feeding people. He loved the sense of community. Yeah. Like, that scene where the entire, like, they're, like, he immediately goes out and is, like, hey, my daughter made gumbo. And everyone's, like, oh, I'll bring some stuff. I'll bring Woo! some stuff. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Like, if you don't have that. Right. Like, I think it, like I think what's nice is it's still a story about falling in love, but it's a broader kind of love, I guess. Yeah. You know, actually, I think I agree with that. I guess I kind of relate to it because it's like, you know, I've had my ups and downs in my career where I've just been like, I just need to keep putting my head down. I just need to get any job I can so I can afford an apartment and I can just have my own space. And it's like, all right, right but are you still going to be you by the time you've been ground down that much? Like, it can't just be right. f- for that. It has to be for something more. I agree. Yeah. And it, that's kind of what the whole song is. Dig a little deeper. Because, like, Tiana's not a bad person. Like, she's not learning something oh, because she's bad. Me. She's just learning something because she has a flaw. Like, she could be happier, and she could use a right. change in perspective. Right. Yes. Um, well, I was going to say, if we want to keep talking about characters, is Prince Naveen the best Disney prince? Yes. Yeah, it's... <laughs> I Well, I also like, too, like, they do a good job of humanizing him, where it's like, yeah, he's kind of a dick, and he's kind of pompous, but at the same time, he's like, I grew up in a castle. I was like... You know, I, I was like, right. you know, everything was taken care of for taken me. And then I turned of. around and realized yeah. like, oh, I don't know how to do anything. Right. And that makes him a lot more sympathetic. Um, no, he is he is the best Disney prince in that he is not like just sort of an ornament um, that doesn't do anything like some other Disney princes. But then he's also not just kind of like a pretty boy like savior at the very end like prince eric or you know what i mean yeah he um i i enjoy like i mean i guess tangled is the only other instance of like the prince being like a an active participant or aladdin but he's the main character yeah i struggle to call him a prince because right. it, it's his movie you know right he, even though he becomes a prince at the end of the movie Right, and I definitely consider Jasmine a princess. But anywho, um, yeah, I, I I stand by the fact that Naveen and Tiana are probably the best Disney couple, and we'll be talking about 
Disney romance and Disney couples next yes. week for our Valentine's Day episode. But we'll let everyone hear those. They topics. their story is the most romantic. They have the most romantic Disney story, hands down. Right. Oh, by a fucking country mile. And yeah, because they both they actually do need each other. Like it really mm-hmm. is like they both bring something to the other that they needed to see. And right. There's a lot of discourse, and unfortunately this movie does get lumped in with the, oh, black protagonist lead who gets turned into a thing. Um, yeah. And Should people, we talk about that? I guess really quickly, because my, here's my stance. People are like, oh, you could have done this story where Tiana stays a human, and I'm like, I just fundamentally don't think that would have worked, because no. if she's a human, yeah. she has enough agency to learn nothing from this. She wouldn't right. be forced to see the human, you know, she wouldn't be able to see and appreciate the good things Prince Nadine is, like what he's right. capable of. Like the only way both of them are going to grow is if they're both in this purely chaotic situation. Right. I, yeah, that was a, that's a very common complaint that I actually never really identified with or, or agreed with its merit. In this case, in in that like, what's the point of making a black princess if she's only black for a small percentage of the film? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I still, watching this, like, don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's like... You know, I don't care. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, but it also works for the story, and it makes for Is a it better a bummer? character. Like, I've got a lot of other issues with the film, <laughs> like, yeah. that I feel like are way more important than... Uh, her being a frog for like more screen time i don't know yeah and like i have flaws i have criticism of this movie too but that is absolutely not one of them um well yeah let's talk about lottie um being chef's kiss perfect yeah um honestly probably (laughs) the she's a top tier disney character i don't care what anyone says i don't care what anyone thinks Mm -hmm. she is perfect um yes i love her (laughs) it's how you do it's kind of how you do parody without being mean-spirited because she's kind of like a parody of simultaneously a Disney fan and what like a Disney princess used to be or what like people think the Disney princess is. Absolutely, yeah. But at the same time, she's still infectiously lovable. And I love that she's drawn like with as much, not as much elegance, but still in that like smooth, clean way that the protagonist character is going to be. But she's animated like she's a wacky animal sidekick. She is constant motion, yeah. constant shaking. She's constant designed nonsense. like a like a delicate princess, but she's animated almost closer to like the Tremaine sisters. Exactly, um, and maybe one of the funniest bits, and like I'm a sucker for any bit that doesn't involve dialogue. The bit where we have this very like dramatic like setup where Prince Naveen's final quote unquote Prince Naveen's finally shown up at the ball. She's at the top of the stairs. The light flashes. And then we just hear, <laughs> step, 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 step. And you just hear her, like, light panting as she makes her way down the stairs. <laughs> Hilarious. And, oh I don't my know. Gosh. I also appreciate, like, she also learns a lesson. Because for me, like, a big thing with this movie is, like, and there's a lot of discourse per- that we'll get to about, like, the LaBeouf family. And it's like, oh, they're so nice to this black family. And I'm like, yeah, but if they were really that nice, they would have just paid for the restaurant themselves. I think it's very pointed that the only time they give Tiana or her mother money is when they perform labor. In exchange for labor, yeah. Yes, like the money, like how Tiana's theoretically going to be able to pay for this loan for the restaurant she wants is because she's making a thousand beignets 
for this for a party. party yeah. That Charlotte thought up of on the on a whim. Like it's not right. until the end of the movie. And where like honestly, let's be honest. Like Tiana's mother was a babysitter. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's a literal servant for this. Like she's a servant here. Like this is not. Yeah. Like, it's a quote unquote friendship, but it's a very distorted like. Right unequal one and I don't really consider them friends until the end of the movie where Naveen pours his heart out and Lottie finally mm-hmm. makes like a sacrifice and it's like I'll right. kiss you no marriage like no nothing because you deserve to yeah I'm happy Tiana. for my friend yeah and you know and I was going to talk about this soon like is some degree of like is it at all fair to call this like a white savior situation my gut says no, only because, right. they, you know, he could have kissed Tiana at any point, and that would have solved the problem. The white savior is a red herring. Yeah, I guess, like, I guess it, it like, I I call it white, like, I'm, I'm tempted to call it a white savior situation, is because it relies on Lottie wanting to do, the right wanting thing. to do the right thing at the end. Yeah. Hmm, that's a good point. Yeah. You know? I think it's in a weird middle ground on that front, I think. Yeah. It's just an idea. Um, um, let's talk about Ray and Lewis, not to be confused with Ray Lewis. I think it's hilarious that you that's how, how you approach these characters. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's not bad. Um, I just think it's really funny. Yeah. So, these two are golden. I don't know how... It's like... How did more people not see this movie? <laughs> well, I think about it, I'm like, this is an outrage. Yeah, it's 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 frustrating because like when you look in the trailers, you're like, ugh, look at these annoying animal sidekick characters, and it's like, no, they're kind of the emotional backbone of this movie. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. if the whole thing is like you have to be turned into an animal to learn a lesson, like both Ray and um, Lewis are pretty vital lessons. Uh, particularly mm-hmm. Ray, like, kind of being the matchmaker for all of this. Right. You know, um, earlier when I said, like, oh, this is Disney showing off, is the scene wherein um, Ray, who is a firefly, by the way, Ray is a Creole uh, firefly um, who lives in the bayou, and Lewis is an alligator. Or is he a crocodile? Alligator. I think alligators are the ones that are in New Orleans. He's an alligator who um, plays a trumpet, and he's passionate about jazz, which is hilarious. Yes. Um, It has the best... It's the best joke in the movie. I was just about to mention that. I was literally about to say, like, rarely do do cutaway scenes work outside of the context of a Seth MacFarlane thing. And somehow this film, in spite of its pomp and circumstance, includes... A comedic cutaway, which I think is so hilarious, of him, like, diving off the side of a riverboat and just these guns, like, firing into the water. (laughs) Something about, yes, he tries to, he's like, oh, I tried to perform in the riverboats. He jumps on, everyone looks horrified. You hear a few screams as he dies off, and then just everyone starts blasting. (laughs) Any joke that's like, oh, anyway, I started blasting. Like, everyone's got guns. Just kills me every (laughs) fucking time. And then his just very deadpan, it didn't go so well. Yeah. It didn't go so well. I mean, I, I do appreciate that this movie fundamentally understands... Like, we talk about the common circumstance of Disney, and, we uh, like, a lot of times these things are treated like they belong in glass cases, but, like, 
even right. Beauty and the Beast has goofy shit in it. It has pop culture references. It has right. a whole bit where furniture's beating the shit out of people. Like, these movies are Which allowed to be great. silly. And I like that right. with these support characters. They're like, they can be earnest, but they're also supposed to be silly. Yeah. And we have to, you know, acknowledge, skipping to the end, spoiler alert for those of you that have not seen this movie, by the way, please go do that. One of the most heartbreaking deaths, if not the most heartbreaking it's death. The shock- most shockingly grisly. Right? Like, I w- even watching this, I was watching that scene today and I was like, how dare they do this right. to us? <laughs> like, this is depressing. And, and I, I was not expecting to be so affected. Like, I truly, like, wanted to cry watching this. Like, every time I see the scene, I'm like, oh, no. Oh, this is awful. <laughs> people, like, people criticize the Ray sections of this movie. But for me, it's like, again, a whole part of this is, like, you know, Tiana is grossed out by frogs growing up. Prince Naveen wouldn't be caught dead around insects or bugs. And, like, the fact that they care so much about this weird little firefly who talk, like, they barely understand. And, (laughs) like, you know, there is, like, him becoming, theoretically becoming a star because he's in love with a star, Evangeline. um, Right. Who he mistakes as a firefly. And then after his funeral, they look up and realize there's another star near Evangeline. And that is just, like, one of the most affirming, beautiful things that Disney movies ever had. And it really is, like, again, just believing the magic of, like, yeah, love will find a way. You guys will find a way. We'll all find a way. Right. And it's like, okay, so maybe Evangeline was real at one point. (laughs) I guess she kind of had to be, right? By this logic, yeah, she probably was a real firefly. (laughs) Yeah. If I was going to levy one criticism, I wish Lewis had more of an arc. Like, because he goes to Mama Odie's thinking, like, I'm going to turn into a human. Like, in the Wizard of Oz part of this movie. Yeah. And then it's like, you already have everything you need. And I'm like, did he just have to believe in himself more as an alligator? I don't... I don't know what he was supposed to get. Right. He's the only one whose arc isn't again, as clear. Again, this is just Mama Odie already knowing the end and being like, don't worry about it. Tiana like, <laughs> Yeah, you'll play jazz. Trust me. Well, like, I guess it's like he needs to be, a, he needs to lean into being an alligator to, like, save his friends because, like, he gets through the crowd during the parade. He bullies the white landowners into letting Tiana have the restaurant. How hilarious is it that, like, only at Mardi Gras, where everyone is in an animal costume, would he be allowed to, like, just hang out with them? It's it's so simple. It's so dumb, but it's so perfect. Right. And then when it comes time to be a real alligator, he's like, all right, time to show my teeth. I have to give up this thing I've wanted because I need to help my friends, and the only way I can do that is being a horrifying Causing a scene. Yeah. Making a scene. (laughs) Right. Um... And we've already talked about Dr. Facilier, who's kind of like the last, and we've talked about Mama Odie. The thing I, mm-hmm. I the one note I wanted to just say on Dr. Facilier is one, sometimes people complain like good villain, but doesn't fit with Tiana's arc. I would argue he does because the whole point of Tiana's arc is you need a little bit of magic, but at the same time, like you, you know, her sort of opening up to a little bit of magic also like finding a middle ground between work and magic. Whereas Dr. Facilier has gone all in on magic. He's like, this is the only way to get anywhere in this town. And maybe he isn't even wrong. Cause again, this is 1920s New Orleans. Like whether or not mm-hmm. you succeed as a black person or whether you make it through the night, unfortunately is kind of dependent mm-hmm. on dumb luck. So yeah, he gets in yeah. with dark magic. And I love like, I love that 
I, I just love how like tired he looks. Like I like that it's like he's We've been running this con too. Yeah. for God knows how long, and like mm-hmm. how much of his body is being like puppeteered by magic at this point, leading to another back to back just horrifically grisly deaths. Right. You know, I um, what's so interesting about Doctor Versilier is like from the jump we realize that like he makes his money because certain people are desperate for <laughs> for solutions to their to their greed essentially and that that is indicative of the kind of person that tiana is when when we have this final scene of him showing her like what her restaurant could be mm-hmm. if she just agrees and you know so so yeah i you know that's what i had up until this point i'd never heard any criticisms of um of him as a villain yeah it's again it's like Tiana works as his foil because she doesn't need to stop working hard. She just has to have a better perspective on what it's for. Like, right, yeah. you know, Naveen and Tiana fundamentally don't change that much. They just have a better understanding right. of who they are and what they should be. Like, right. you know, Naveen learns he's got to put in a little work, but he doesn't change his behavior. He's still a fun-loving guy. He still kicks back. But he right. just has a sense of like, well, yeah, sometimes you got to put in the work. Whereas Tiana's like, no, I'm still mm. going to work hard because that's who I am. But like, I gotta appreciate what it's for and take time for me. I gotta go dancing sometimes. Exactly, right. I wanted to cover more of my complaints. Are we ready to talk complaints? <laughs> um, yeah, because honestly, the music is kind of one of my complaints. It is, really. Okay, well, here's what I would say. Almost there, top like, top-tier Disney princess song. Perfectly captures the character. I love that it goes into, like, a different animation style. I love how they keep bringing Mm. it up because her whole arc is, like, you're so close if you just put a little bit of work in or you put a little bit of magic in and then her realizing, like, this isn't how I want to do it. Um, Opening song. Great workman song. Again, it gets you everything you need to know. Great villain song. I guess I would argue after the first three songs, it kind of runs out of steam a little bit. Like, I like When We're Human, I'm not as big on the Firefly song. Like, the back half is not as tight as some of the other Disney Renaissance movies where you're like, there's no mob songs here where I'm like, this is still pretty good. Well, that's because at the back half of the, like, yeah, everything after Almost There, the songs no longer are vehicles for the story. They're more parts of, like, the episodic adventures. Yeah. And in general, I think... I also think the back half of the movie gets a little episodic in general, but then I'm like, yeah, but I don't know what episodes you cut because I like all of the episodes and all of them. Right. Other than even the part where they're just fighting frog catchers, which I'm like, ooh, this is, there's a lot to unpack that here. That is a good scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a fun scene. And also it's like them learning to work together. So you're like, are you going to cut that? Right. Um, right. Them learning to work together and learning how to be frogs. Yes, really and well. being like, yeah, there's something, we're, there's, we're frogs for a reason. Right. And I also just think, like, again, I think it gets to a problem where I really do feel like Disney struggled to find, like, a solution to not Howard being Howard Ashman anymore for these. Um, the Frozen team, maybe, but, like, you know, we're waiting to see what they do after Frozen 2. And also, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, it's weird to do a movie about black people in New Orleans and you pick Randy Newman. I don't know. Is it? I mean, it's... Okay, so, like, they bring in Lin-Manuel Miranda for Moana, even though he's not Polynesian, but they had Polynesian musicians working on it, too. 
Like, I guess, you know, okay. Randy Newman's a native of New Orleans and he does jazz, but I'm just like, I don't know, it would have been nice to have a black composer. Well, I feel like you just answered your own question. Uh, maybe. From New Orleans and does jazz. I don't know. I, I feel like why Randy Newman has worked so well for Pixar is because he has, like, a quintessential American sound. Mm, that's true. And I couldn't be more satisfied with his involvement in this. I actually think uh, it is perfect because this isn't just, like, black music. This is, like, Creole Bayou mm-hmm. culture, which is separate and different from many other black Americans. Yeah, you know what? That is a very good point that I don't think I appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your criticisms for the movie? Well, you know, mine is a little more broad, and it's a criticism that I don't know that I would, like, change because it would fundamentally change the film itself, the story, and the characters, but this this ties back to the complaints of Tiana being a frog for mm-hmm. half the movie. Who fucking cares? I don't care. But what I do care about is that, you know, within the princess canon, you know, every time that these princesses are licensed for any kind of product, it's like, mm-hmm. I, I resent the idea that Tiana is forever associated with labor I have issue with this because anytime that we see Tiana in toys, in products, you know, even like her sort of language with her characters in the park, all of her references are about cooking. In the Wreck-It Ralph cameo thing, Ralph Breaks the Internet, that, that famous princess sequence, even that she talks about like cooking. And it's like, I saw her as more of an entrepreneur than I did, like, a cook. And, but now she is, like, forever cemented in, like, this, like, cooking role. And for me, I have an issue with black people being exclusively associated with labor and roles of service. And I resent that she is kind of forever, she she is permanently, even though she is a princess... You know, we don't we don't associate Cinderella with cleaning. Right? We associate her with balls <laughs> and shoes. We literally associate her with fucking shoes. That's a really <laughs> interesting point I didn't think about. So that's my complaint. Yeah. Like Tiana wants to own a restaurant, but the thing about restaurant owners, even if they're chefs, they don't really do any cooking. They create the menu, certainly. But like they're right. not working day to day. They're they're supervising. They're like in and in her fantasy, she's like the host. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's really so, telling. Yeah, she envisions herself as like wearing these gowns and like greeting her guests at the door and things like that. And like, but now anytime she's like referenced or we see her, it is all about cooking. She's not like any of her toys are like her like if you Google like Princess and the Frog fucking toys, it'll be all like cookware. <laughs> Like toy, toy cookware, and it's weird, but you know. So, so that is my big complaint. Have no clue how I would fix it. it but it's like I don't know how I'd fix it. It's like she's a restaurant owner. Like, like you said, she's a restaurant owner. That doesn't mean that she's a cook. 
And so why she was chosen to be licensed in this way, I don't know. Like, why they doubled down on that. I mean, it gets to... I'm not really sure. It gets to a problem, like, where it's just like, yeah, but, like, a lot of people making these decisions are white people, and they just don't really think about that. They don't really think about the Mm -hmm. implications of that. Which kind of gets to a lot of problems that people had with this film, where it's like, the times they do tackle race, it's a bit clumsy, and then... A lot of times oh, they right. don't tackle yeah. race, and it's like, do you really want two sixty-something white guys with Hawaiian T-shirts? I don't know why I get so hung up on the fucking Hawaiian T-shirts. I just think it's weird. All the it's like, a personality type. Yeah, I don't know why all the Cal Arts guys from that era insisted on the Hawaiian, except Tim Burton, but he was like the weird little different child who left. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's. I will say one thing I noticed is because they closed Splash Mountain, that's a part of this film's legacy is now Splash Mountain is going to be sort of rebranded as a, um, as a princess and the frog ride. And I think it's interesting that the signs like, because they have like the construction signs and they're Tiana foods or something along those lines. Like it makes it sound more like a business as opposed to a restaurant. So I hope like Mm. assuming we're still doing the Tiana adventures thing, I hope they take that thought to heart where it's like she's not working hard in the kitchen every day. That's not her life Mm -hmm. anymore. She's a businesswoman. She's like an innovator. That wasn't even her vision. Yeah, that wasn't even what she wanted. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, no, no. I That's a really interesting criticism that I think I agree with completely. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think this film tackles race in interesting and more subtle ways. Again, that sort of like arbitrary nature of like what black people get to rise up the ranks and which get left and like Mm -hmm. are you willing to sell out for dark magic to jump the line you know right like again the fact that Lottie and Tiana's relationship is built exclusively on service and business like I think it handles it in subtle interesting way it handles it again in a way that I'm comfortable with two Hawaiian shirted white men handling it but nothing more nothing less okay quick rapid fire like name one of your like favorite moments from the movie this is a weird moment but when they meet when they turn into frogs just the physical comedy of them tumbling through this party like we get the silly pop culture reference of hey stella but there's also a moment like the guy with the octopus arms with all the drinks immediately pouring them out because he's like ah, i gotta clean up <laughs> yeah. my hands building up to a moment where it looks like the dog stella the dog is gonna eat them and tiana's like no 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 it's me it's me and uh the dog, Stella goes, Tiana, it's a crazily elegant storytelling thing to be like, okay, they can be understood by animals now, and animals can understand them, without, like, really overstating it. Like, then Tiana has her moment where she's like, I just talked to a dog, but it's just such a smooth thing. Or even, like, another example of that is, I love how often they show that shadows can affect the physical world. So when the shadow oh, keeps yeah. her from smashing the talisman, we already have right. that knowledge in our heads, so when it happens, we're like, oh, no! Right. Um, and, of course, the Evangeline song. I just, again, it's arresting oh. seeing them, like, dance mm-hmm. and fall in love with each other. Again, it's right. that, like, this is what Disney magic is. Distilled. Absolutely. What about you? Right. Okay, so this is why we're best friends, because you literally chose mine. I was going to say the Stella moment. And this is why we think alike. But I'm glad that it's not just me enjoying really obscure moments and that that is actually a really effective storytelling tool right. of just having an actor come in to say one word. 
Right? And it That's being, like, part. a huge part of the story. <laughs> like, they credit the voice actor for Stella. Right, for Stella. a line. And it it's, you're right, like, there is an elegance about this moment of, because there's there's so much storytelling there. Like, now we are establishing that all animals speak to each other, regardless of what kind of animal they are. But that animals have, like, personalities, and they understand who human beings are, and for this dog to be like, I know you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then... That's like, really deep. Yeah, and I like, even before we know that, like, and then we cut to Dr. Facilier, and it's like, oh, we already know that, like, the bumbling servant has somehow fucked all of this up to let Prince Naveen right. out. Like, this wasn't the plan. They weren't just going to leave this frog right. hopping around. Like, right. <laughs> and just that, like, frogs can talk to humans, that whole sequence. And just, like, again, I like picking an obscure one, because I'm like... You don't need us to tell you Friends on the Other Side's a great sequence. You already know that. We're here to get. We're yeah. here to really break it down for you, boys. Um, right. Exactly. And then, of course, like again, I just love the sequence where they meet for the first time. And like, obviously, that's a huge moment. That's like the trailer moment. But I love. Right. Again, it gets to like Tiana being a perfect balance between Megara and like the Disney Renaissance princesses, where she's like a little cynical and a little jaded, um, but mm-hmm. still like elegant and lovable. And I love how she has right. to hype herself up for kissing this frog. Like, it's not just right. a cutaway joke. from. It's not just, like, a one-off joke at the beginning of the movie, I'll never, ever kiss a frog. She is genuinely right. revolted at this Skeeved. idea. Yeah. And I also, I have to, one of the other, like, oh, Disney's showing off again, is the Bayou, the Going Down the Bayou song, mm-hmm. where Ray and his family of fireflies, like, dance through the bayou. That is so arresting. Like, that is i like that just makes me fall in love over and over and over again that scene of these characters being like lit up like literally illuminated like by a cloud of fireflies right and it's like for me that song is probably my least favorite but at the same time i'm like i love that sequence though it's so Mm -hmm. beautiful it captures the theme of like community that's what all this is about love loving your community and loving yourself and loving the people you love and also like again i like the stars as fireflies metaphor i think that's so again it's just another like they thought of layers it's like howard ashman brought like musical sensibilities to disney in the sense of like you can use music and images and motion to tell big ideas without actually saying the ideas out loud and this is just another great example of that Absolutely. All right. Um, oh, well, one more point, and I'll probably just crowbar this in somewhere. Um, one thing that they did with this movie um, that was kind of classic Disney animation is they brought in animators to work specifically on specific characters. That is like a mm-hmm. traditional Disney thing, whereas modern animation, it's more individual animators will get whole scenes to do. The idea is like, gotcha. oh, we'll keep a character consistent through the entire movie. And I really like that because I think it gets to what um, was great about Musker and Clemens as a creative team. It's like, they embody animation directors where it's like, an animation team should be, an, as they put it, artistic ensemble. Like, everyone is bringing something to this. And it's not about one man's right. vision trumping everything else. It's about figuring out how to harmonize everyone's different skill sets to make something beautiful. So, this film... So it came out in 2009, a holiday season movie, and it was well received by critics. Like, 
this isn't one of those, like, oh, people didn't appreciate it at the time. People respected it. Maybe they weren't as over the moon as we are, but, you know, people mm-hmm. gave it good reviews. Uh, it made $24 million its opening weekend, which was the highest grossing uh, December release, animated December release of all time. But uh, It passed Beavis and Butthead Do America, of all things. Nice. God knows why they put that in the Christmas slot. Um, <laughs> uh, it ended up making over $100 million domestically, uh, $267 total worldwide. So, and, mm. like, compared to the last couple hand-drawn releases, it was way, 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 way better. But it was still short of, like, the Disney Renaissance era, and it's short of this modern mm. era of Disney where they're, like, 200 million domestic, please. That's our, um... Right. That's our asking price. Minimum. Yes. And, in a lot of ways, that kind of... That kind of sealed a lot of fates, because... You know, Musker and Clemens end up moving to CGI for Moana when they finally come back. The promise of doing hand-drawn animation kind of fell flat, and Mm -hmm. I think it is the self-fulfilling prophecy thing we were discussing, because John Lasseter made a big hubbubaloo about, like, well, I'm not going to force anyone to make a movie a specific way. I'm going to offer them, do you want to do this hand-drawn, or do you want to do the CGI? And it's like, if you go to an animator and be like, hey, do you want to do this hand-drawn CGI? And they would be like, oh, I can do it in the form where you won't promote it as well. Uh, Boys will call it gay, and it might hurt my career if it bombs. No, I'll do the other one, thank you very much. There was discussion about moving uh, Rapunzel to hand-drawn, and they were just like, "Ah, we're already in too deep, and why would we jeopardize the film like that? And it just, that kind of sucks. That, like, Mm -hmm. this was an attempt to bring hand-drawn animation back. It's one of the most beautiful examples we've had in the 21st century. And it ended up scaring away more than it helped. Wow. Yeah. Um, and, like, in terms of discussing, and we've already talked about why we think it flopped. Like, obviously, the race element is a part of it because, yeah, like, and, like, people are like, oh, you're playing the race card. But it's like, we're losing, people are losing their shit over M&M's not being sexy anymore. Like, this culture war right. stuff does affect people's purchases, whether we like it or not. Right. And I also, and I put this in my notes, uh, this was the same winter that fucking Avatar came out. And that oh, kind of takes everything because people forget avatar didn't have the biggest opening but it was basically Mm -hmm. the number one movie or the number two movie for months it just had legs for days and days and days and it's like well that sucks because you're not getting any secondhand viewings or like after the party viewings because those people are just going to go see avatar which really did just kind of put it in a bind Hmm. but you know in spite of that and i think this is where i kind of want to talk about like, Tiana has remained a presence in spite of, sort of, all of this struggle. That failure? Yeah. yeah. She was pretty much immediately put into the Disney princess canon, like, the, you know, the image right, they have. Right, without question. Now. Like, yeah. you know, she's been a presence at the parks for forever. She still has merchandise. And mm-hmm. especially now, it feels appropriate to talk about this movie. And they're, yeah, they're, they're, she's becoming even more prevalent in the parks. Right, there's this little renaissance where she's going to have her own ride. They're restructuring some mm-hmm. of the restaurants to be Tiana-themed. Like, right. this movie did make an impact. And, again, that fucking matters. Um, I wanted to bring up one other quote uh, from Anika that she just says, Being the first black Disney princess, that was such a first, and it really has changed the way young brown children are looked at in school and fantasy when they're playing. Right. Uh, 
It's no longer, you can't be the princess. It's expected and normal. And it's like, yes. This film is messy. This, like, in a lot of ways, some of the flubs this movie made in terms of, like, handling race relations, I feel like, is why they've really hyped up the brain trust. There's this weird transition Mm -hmm. in Disney animation where whenever they would do a quote-unquote cultural movie beforehand, they'd be like, trust me, we went to New Orleans for 10 days or we went to China for 14 days. Uh, the Blank Check podcast pointed out, it's always 10 to 14. There's no, there's no like, 20 <laughs> right. days. It's always either two weeks or 10 days. Like, that's when they start making, like, the Poly- uh, Polynesian Brain Trust or the, um, or the um, South Asian Trust for Raya. They it try is, to make like, oh. it's creepy to me to refer to certain films as cultural when, like, every single Disney movie is steeped in culture. Right. Well, I guess, like, non... I'm trying to think of how to word it better, but, like... Non-white. One, that's kind of how yeah. they view it, unfortunately. Right, exactly. Yeah. As, as, like, as non-white beings being, like, in other, yeah. Right, when it's, like, in reality, it's, like, you know, Frozen is said in, like, a distinctly Nova Scotia environment. Like Beauty and the Beast is French. Like those are cultures still, but they're ones. Tiana you don't is have the to do only American. Work. Well, yeah, that too. It's like at the same time, this is the one you should relate to the most because she lives here. Exactly. And it's the right. real world. <laughs> right. Exactly. But like, but yeah, it's like this pushed them to try and be a little better on a lot of these things in terms of like, okay, we have to do our homework. We can't like just go in and say we're gonna do this without expecting, you know. Because then we're, like, possibly not being as sensitive as we could be. Right. Yeah. And I also just think, like, so in terms of bringing hand-drawn animation back, you know, this was unfortunately a failure, but it did bring the Disney way back. Like... I agree, yeah. Like, bringing back an earnestness in the Disney company where it's like, no, no, we're not doing, like, we're not doing pop cult, you know, we're not doing endless pop culture references and shit like we're doing like traditional right. disney movies right and like i said before you don't get back to frozen you don't get back to tangled unless you have princess and the frog that proves out no there there is an audience for this and even though the medium of hand-drawn animation didn't prove itself out disney mm-hmm. magic did prove itself out and that has right. fortunately stayed yeah. Yeah, this is still not that, you know, anything we talked about today would change that, but this might be my number one. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> as always, if there's one takeaway from our story or our, like, discussions here, it's like, if you haven't seen this, just give it a chance. That's all we ever ask. Yeah, give it a chance because we promise you'll love it. Right. Like... There's no way. The only reason that it's like, I just can't reiterate that enough. It's like, I cannot believe people aren't watching this movie and aren't loving this movie. And they're not loving it because they aren't watching it. Right. Yeah. I get like, again, it's been in this never ending loop of like, oh, it's bad because I haven't seen and I haven't seen it. But I'm assuming it's bad even though I haven't seen it. And like, try to break out of that cycle for this one because. Oftentimes, yeah. when you finally sit down and watch something, you'll be pleasantly surprised. And I promise you, this will be one of those times. Do you have any wrap-ups? Like, I guess in terms of your life, like, how much of a presence is this in your life? What is its legacy for you? 
I feel like I have, I feel like, you know, with my history with, you know, almost working for Disney and things like that under this context, like, I've had so much history with this film. It, it meant so much to me as a child to mm. see a black princess 100%. That quote that you had from Anika Noni Rose about her saying that in, in, in interpersonal situations as a child, um, that's a real phenomenon that that you don't believe that something is possible or exists until you see it. And yeah, the idea of getting to play even a princess, you know, with your friends. Yeah, that wasn't possible before this movie. Um, so there's, there's so many reasons that Tiana is my favorite and that I love this film so much. Because in so many ways, this, this movie does feel like a, a homecoming 100% um, and so yeah this this is this will always be like a comfort watch um, and one that I like will always gravitate to uh, the most for sure and until we're back down in the bayou you know with the magic of New Orleans walking right. through the air I'm Carter and I'm Sydney have a magical day Thanks for listening.